Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Those of you who've been listening from the beginning know that I, I normally open with a personal visit to some kind of creepy location. Or on occasion, I'll, I'll tell a surprisingly true tale of some real-world horror. As a storyteller, it's been a lot of fun. And as a student of human behavior and human culture, it's been fascinating. But on a more personal level, I've got to say, after watching all the movies we've watched, after talking to all the people we've met, and after traveling to all kinds of places I never imagined going— I'm not the same person who started this journey with you. I suppose any trip worth the effort should in, in some way change you, but I don't think I expected things to go quite the way they did. So for our final episode, I, I thought I'd do something a little different because, well, I'm a little different now. In fact, I'm not even gonna try and scare you because if this episode works, I won't have to. I'm your number one fan. Don't fall asleep. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. We have such sights to show you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Exploring fear, faith, and stories that scare the hell out of us. I'm your host, Cutter Calloway. Be afraid. On this episode, we bring our season of horror to a close just as everyone imagined it would end, with a Christmas special. So whenever or wherever you may be listening, happy holidays from the Be Afraid family to yours. Sunday before Christmas. I'm Fraser Thomas, here again to welcome you and act as your host for another Sunday presentation of Family Classics. Besides his many novels, which made him famous all over the world, we also owe to an English author by the name of Charles Dickens many of the seasonal ideas from which we recognize the spirit of Christmas. It's the tale of one Ebenezer Scrooge and how he learned the true meaning of Christmas in a most unusual fashion. So now, if you're quite ready, let us begin that story. Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, is pretty much everywhere this time of year. Whether it takes the form of a marketing campaign, a contemporary reimagining like with the film Spirited, or a full-blown stage play at your church or local community theater— the story of Ebenezer Scrooge is almost unavoidable between Thanksgiving and New Year's. Of course, it's easy to forget because of how many times it's been told and retold and how often Mickey Mouse or Muppets are involved, but Dickens' A Christmas Carol is first and foremost a horror story. 
The entire plot is driven by supernatural beings showing up in the main character's bedroom, unannounced and uninvited, in the middle of the night. It is truly terrifying, but we can't seem to look away, so we keep telling it to ourselves over and over and over again. My question is, what gives? We all know that Christmas isn't about haunted nights, it's about silent nights, and joy and peace and hope and all the other warm, fuzzy feelings we get from drinking hot chocolate and new PJs. At least, that's what the great Catherine O'Hara led me to believe in the best Christmas movie of all time. I have been awake for almost 60 hours. I'm tired and I'm dirty. I have been from Chicago to Paris to Dallas to... Where the hell am I? Scranton. I am trying to get home to my eight-year-old son. And now that I'm this close, you're telling me it's hopeless. I'm sorry. No! No, 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 no way! This is Christmas! The season of perpetual hope! Mammoth. And I don't care if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike. If it costs me everything I own, if I have to sell my soul to the devil himself, I am going to get home to my son. During a season of perpetual hope, how do we explain a Christmas carol? How is it that a haunting vision of regret and economic exploitation and relational fallout is one of the most enduring and possibly even endearing Christmas stories of all time? And why doesn't it scare us as much as supernatural horror stories usually do? A few years ago, to amp up the scarier elements of the narrative, FX released a version starring Guy Ritchie as Scrooge that was flat-out horror, complete with jump scares, nightmarish visions, and even Marley's jaw falling to the floor and being reattached. But as much as it uses the techniques of modern-day horror filmmaking to great effect, the underlying terror of Dickens' original story is what makes it truly unsettling. How many Merry Christmases are meant? How many are lies? To pretend on one day of the year that the human beast is not the human beast. That it is possible we can all be transformed. But if it were so, if it were possible, for so many mortals to look at the calendar and transform from wolf to lamb, then why not every day? Instead of one day good, the rest bad, why not have everyone grinning at each other all year and have one day in the year when we're all beasts and we pass each other by? Why not turn it around? Yes, sir. Yes, you could call that day of beastliness Scrooge Day, in honor of its inventor. Is it possible for the human beast to be transformed? That's the central question this classic Christmas horror story explores. But I might ask it in another way. Do our hopes have anything to do with our fears? Of all the descriptions that Dickens uses to first introduce Ebenezer Scrooge, hope is nowhere to be found. Ice cold, isolated, set in stone, yes. Hopeful, not so much. Interestingly enough, neither is there any kind of fear, at least not on the surface. Here's Dickens in his own words. Covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. 
The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme. More than just an internal disposition, Scrooge's miserliness is so thoroughly a part of who he is that it can even be seen in his physical appearance. We're not given any information at the beginning of the story to know exactly how Scrooge came to be this way. All we know is that he's no longer recognizably human. He's more like a, a rock or a piece of steel than a human being, and there's very little hope that this state of affairs will ever change. Which raises an important question. What is it about this particular man, Scrooge, that speaks to some core truth about the human condition? Why is it that no matter how different we all are, so many of us can identify, at least on some level, with such a miserly, cold, and cruel man. I wonder if one of the reasons we resonate with this story is the shared sense that, barring some kind of miracle, any real chance for transformation disappeared a long time ago, for Scrooge and for us. But of course, that is precisely what Scrooge gets, a Christmas miracle in the form of multiple hauntings. Guided by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, each step of Scrooge's journey from human beast to human being is more terrifying than the next, not only because of the presence of ghosts, but also because Scrooge is forced to confront the fears that have consumed his hope. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Before any of these spirits ever shows up, the inciting incident in Scrooge's story is the arrival of the long-dead Jacob Marley, Scrooge's lifelong business partner. They all ceased as they had begun together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound. And then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still, said Scrooge. I won't believe it. His color changed, though, when, without a pause, it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. The same face. The very same. Marley. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat. Again the spectre raised a cry and shook its chain and wrung its shadowy hands. You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself. It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas eves ago. You have labored on it since. 
It is a ponderous chain. Forever cursed to walk in purgatory, Marley bears in death the full weight of his utter lack of concern for the well-being of others, especially the poor. He thus appears to Scrooge as an apparition cloaked in the chains he himself forged while still alive, which means that Scrooge's eventual transformation is initiated not by any kind of non-human entity, but instead by an all-too-human presence. And this got me thinking. With all the stories people have been willing to share with me about their encounters with demons and exorcisms for earlier episodes of the podcast, how many of us, if pressed, would admit to having a similar experience to Scrooge's? Have you ever seen or even just imagined you'd seen a relative or a, a loved one who was dead? And what'd you make of it? Was it terrifying, inspiring, or was it something else altogether? Maybe more importantly, whether real or imagined, did your experience seeing or imagining the dead change you in any way? Or has the experience simply faded from memory, a, a blip on your consciousness that you've convinced yourself never really happened? Because I've never personally had an experience of this kind, I decided to consult with an expert, my good friend, Dr. Tommy Givens, who's also one of my colleagues at Fuller Seminary. Tommy's a professor of New Testament studies, and given his expertise, I wanted to get a few of his thoughts on how we might look at the first Noel in a different light. But Tommy also has a pretty fascinating story of his own that might help us rethink the horror story otherwise known as Christmas. <laughs> you know, that time of year when we tell scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. The reason I mention Tommy's expertise is to highlight his credibility as a trustworthy source and to assure you that like every story we've shared, nothing here is fabricated. As I've said to many people over the course of this season of the podcast, there are way too many true stories out there to make things up. So, here's Dr. Givens' ghost story. So I was in my classroom at Fuller on the third floor of Peyton Hall, and I was alone. And I do think that the way the living relate to the dead has something significant to do with the kinds of activities with which we associate the dead and how those relate to the activities of our life. So I'm being a Bible teacher in this classroom. My dad was himself a Bible teacher. And so I think I was in the classroom before anyone was going to come. And as I'm standing there in front of the classroom, I suddenly see my dad just standing in the back row of the class not looking at me in a fearful way or anything, but clearly sort of engaged with me being there. You know, he wasn't like oblivious where I'm sort of looking at him in another dimension or something. We're like in the same space. I of course did kind of a double take and then when I looked back, didn't see anything. The other thing that was sort of weird is it, it struck me as similar to a flash of lightning. I felt like I'd seen him in a flash, and then it was gone as fast as it had been there. And then I was just sort of moved in that moment, I think, by how near my dad feels to me when I'm teaching. I mean, my mind is full of his proverbs and refrains about teaching, and they just kind of bubble out of my mouth often in the middle of a class, like I just said, this last week, something like, well, I learned from my dad 
that if you teach the Bible and it's boring, that is a sin. So the Bible is not a boring book. You actually have to work and commit a dereliction of duty to make it boring for people. Like a flash of lightning that rattles your vision and leaves you with an afterimage, the dead are somehow, and in some way, never far from us. Maybe it's just the season we're in, but when I hear Tommy's story of his father visiting him in his classroom, I can't help but think of the story of Marley visiting Scrooge, the story of a dead man appearing as an apparition to a former business partner. Yet, as unnerving as Tommy's experience clearly was, it wasn't a moment of fear or paralyzing dread, and it definitely wasn't an encounter with a supernatural being. Tommy was visited by a very human person with whom he was bonded in life, much like Scrooge was. But the reason one of their experiences was terrifying and the other was illuminating has to do with the prior relationship that had been forged between the dead who were doing the haunting and the living who were being haunted. And that would hold true for us as well. Whether we're a cutthroat business executive like Scrooge or a Bible teacher like Tommy, the dead have something to teach us. And if they have to appear to us in chains and shackles to get our attention, then that's probably what they're gonna do. The question is, are we, the living, ready and able to hear what the dead have to say? Are we willing to see what they have to show us? And maybe even more importantly, will it make any difference? Is there any hope that we might actually change? Or at this point in our lives, is it hopeless? Could anything, even the appearance of a long dead friend or loved one, thaw our ice cold hearts or mend what's been broken? Scrooge lay in this state until the chime had gone three quarters more, when he remembered on a sudden that the ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell tolled one. If we have any chance of answering those questions, we have to follow Scrooge into the past. I told you, these were but shadows of the things that have been, that they are what they are. Do not blame me. Take me away. Very well, but we have not done yet, Ebenezer Scrooge. We do but turn another page. Ebenezer Scrooge had a past, one that not only shaped him, but was also shaped by him. His mother died in childbirth. His father, a cruel man who never forgave Scrooge for his mother's death, sent him away alone to boarding school. Tragically, his sister, the one person he truly loved, died in childbirth as well. Like father, like son, Scrooge could never forgive the nephew whose life always reminded him of her death. Ebenezer's past is reminiscent of so many of the characters that populate the horror genre. Because he was so deeply wounded by the people who were closest to him, he became someone and something that exploited the vulnerabilities of others. So to fully understand how Scrooge's past shaped him, it isn't enough to ask what's wrong with him. Rather, we need to ask what happened to him. But Scrooge was no innocent either. He abandoned his gracious and, more importantly, generous mentor Fezziwig and started a cutthroat business with his new partner, Jacob Marley. Over time, the two built such a cold and calculating relationship that when Marley died and Scrooge inherited his entire fortune, he was unmoved. There was no remorse, no pity, no grief, only profit. 
During that same time, the genuine love that Scrooge initially had for Alice began to fade, replaced by his one true love, money. Like any of us, no singular event or decision solely determines who Scrooge eventually becomes. But if there was a point of no return, a moment when he broke bad, it would be the disillusion of his relationship with Alice. You no longer love me. When have I ever said that? In words, never. Well, in what then? In the way you have changed. But how have I changed towards you? By changing towards the world. It, it, it is such a terrible thing for a man to struggle to be something better than he is. Another idol has replaced me in your heart. A golden idol. The past, it would seem, is never past. We've each inherited a history that both precedes us and will continue long after we're gone. And that inheritance is often complicated. Like Scrooge, the shades of things that have been are often beyond regrettable. Sometimes they're nightmarish. That's true for anyone on an individual level, but it's especially true for those who are part of the Christian community. Whether it's fundamentalism, political opportunism, science denialism, sexism, racism, or any other ism, our ghosts are many. They haunt us. But excusing them or ignoring them or even trying to pretend like they can somehow be left behind or renounced altogether won't do any of us any good. Because whether we like it or not, the dead are never far from us. And we ignore them at our own peril and the peril of those who will inevitably suffer from our refusal to respond. It's a matter of what kind of burden of the dead we're carrying in our life. So I'm sure that there's unresolved grievances and fears and difficulties, right, with my memory of my dad. But it's also the case that I have a lot of gifts in my life that I associate with being his son. But I, I have a feeling that in other cases, people experience the presence of the dead as, you know, an unwelcome kind of haunting because their connection to that presence is actually disturbing. There's something burdensome, something that is kind of hanging over their life. That's certainly the case with Scrooge. So that's why I think it's significant to not dismiss some encounter with the presence of the dead, but to consider it and to ask, what do I need to maybe address here? What is following me? Maybe it's not always something we have to address with that dead presence, uh, that person, let's say. I think it's significant that, you know, we do have intergenerational sins. <laughs> And so maybe the way the dead haunt us is for us to address something about their legacy that we do have the power to address, but that we have to become cognizant of in order to do something about it. So I think this is where, to me, the presence of the dead is really important for us to pay attention to because we're foolish if we imagine that we haven't inherited all kinds of evil from our ancestors. And we're equally as foolish to think that we don't have anything to do with how that's going to affect people who inherit 
our places, our names, our memories from us. So to me, it's actually a crucial plea for redemption, you know, when there's an unwelcome presence <laughs> of the dead that is calling for us to do something, whether it's about how we relate to them particularly or harms that have reverberated from their life that we have some power to do something about. Echo Tommy, the only thing more foolish than ignoring the wisdom and knowledge the dead have to offer us is to think we're not involved in passing on the evil we've inherited to those who we will one day haunt. On the face of it, it's pretty scary to imagine that we're haunted in this way. But just because it's scary doesn't mean that it can't be good. As Dickens himself wrote in his preface to the novella, I have endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, Charles Dickens. I know we don't typically use words like pleasant to talk about being haunted, but I think what Dickens was getting at is that, as unsettling as a ghostly presence might be, not all hauntings are made equal. Think of the different conversations we've had over the course of the season about films as wide-ranging as The Babadook, The Exorcist, Paranormal Activity, and The Conjuring. Each of these features a haunting of some kind, one that demands a reckoning with the past. Yet some end in terror, others in transformation. In fact, by simply acknowledging that the past is still very much with us, we're able to turn our fear of that which haunts us into new and even more redemptive ways of relating to ourselves and others, both in our past and in our present. I don't know about you, but in the present, I still find myself getting creeped out by some of the same things that scared me as a kid, especially during Christmas. For example, anytime I see one of those life-size nativity scenes in front of a church, it reminds me of the scene in Home Alone when the wet bandits are chasing after Kevin and he hides in the nativity by dressing as a shepherd. It's probably why, to this day, I still don't associate nativity scenes with anything pleasant or any feelings of nostalgia, but instead with sheer terror. I know it's a John Hughes feel-good Christmas classic, one that we really do use the word pleasant to describe, but it's actually a home invasion horror movie. The thought of being eight years old and waking up one day to find your entire family gone, only to have to defend your house against burglars, is literally the stuff my nightmares are made of. Come to think of it, I should probably rethink my yearly ritual of watching that movie with my kids. Hmm. But even before Home Alone ruined nativity scenes for me, the nativity story was already terrifying. It's just that, a lot like the story of Scrooge, We've heard it so many times and in such sentimental settings that the raw, visceral horror of it all is lost on us. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. 
For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And they were sore afraid. It's pretty astounding that every year a beloved Peanuts character takes the stage and reads a passage directly from Scripture to the whole world. But one of the unintended consequences of such a reading is that it robs the story of some of its most visceral power. To translate, sore afraid means the shepherds were utterly terrified. But the shepherds aren't alone. Every single person who's told about the unfolding events shares one thing in common. They were afraid. Mary, Joseph, Zechariah, each of them is not only afraid, but deeply disturbed. So much so that just like the shepherds in the field, the first thing the mysterious messengers tell them is, fear not. It really is a much needed disclaimer by the angelic hosts. Just imagine you're one of the poor schmucks who pulled the graveyard shift, probably because you're one of the newest or not so skilled shepherds. As you're minding your own business, working on a strategy for how you're gonna climb the corporate shepherding ladder, legions of shining beings suddenly show up out of nowhere, announcing the immaculate conception of a god who's about to be born as a human. It's enough to make you soil your tunic and your cloak. But for one reason or another, the terror of this experience doesn't always translate, possibly because we've heard the story a thousand times. It's like we hear it without really hearing it. Know me better, man. Uh, did I already say that? You did. Yeah. I am the ghost of Christmas present. This is the night before the... If Scrooge is haunted by the past, he's become nearly unhuman in the present. As he witnesses one Christmas Day scene after another, it becomes clear that he's less a man estranged from the world and others, and more a creature who no longer belongs in the world of human cares and concerns. He sees coal miners suffering under the cruel working conditions that he created, his beloved Alice caring for the destitute, and the Cratchit family who, along with Tiny Tim, are struggling just to survive. But they all seem to have something Scrooge does not, the kind of contentment and joy that can only come from a generous spirit. Scrooge, however, knows nothing of joy or contentment, and this is to say nothing of generosity. He spent a lifetime practicing exactly the opposite, so what the ghost of Christmas present gives to Scrooge are the eyes to see and ears to hear what he had trained himself not to see and not to hear. For a moment, he's given a glimpse of the untold horrors that so many of those closest to him face every day. But he also hears those same people speak openly and repeatedly of the various ways in which he, through his own cruelty and apathy, is the cause of their suffering. And that's when he realizes there may be no hope for a miser or a monster like him. What a mind you have. You counted yourself the most hard done by boy in the world. And you counted and counted. Wherever you looked, you didn't see people. You saw pounds and pennies. The weakness of others spun into wealth. Your accounts were your new Alibaba. Profit, your new Valentine. Ah, I forgot, you are mocking me. 
I have done no more and no less in my life than many an illustrious businessman. Your life? Did you say your life? Come and see your life. It's an inescapable reality. Our past experiences both shape our present fears and constrain our future hopes. But the terrible events of the past didn't just happen to us. Whether we choose to ignore it or not, we have become active participants in the unfolding horrors we've inherited. So we're haunted by the very real wounds and pains that were inflicted upon us by generations of people who came before us. But like Scrooge, we are often the perpetrators of this violence in the present, inflicting it upon others. Which means that at our best, we are human beasts suffering from painful wounds, and at our worst, we are the terrifying creature stirring within. At least, that's one of the main themes in Damien Levesque's new Christmas horror movie, A Creature Was Stirring, which is now available to watch on Apple+. Starring Chrissy Metz, Annalise Basso, and Scout Taylor Compton, it tells the story of a nurse taking care of a daughter who suffers from a mysterious affliction. When a group of uninvited strangers show up during a blizzard, the mother can no longer hide the secrets she's been keeping. Nice house. It's just you here. I have a daughter. She's prone to psychotic episodes. Something is wrong here. You don't know what it's like to be a mother! You might remember Damien from a couple episodes ago when we talked about monsters and cosmic horror. His last film was called The Cleansing Hour, and it's a really interesting contemporary take on exorcism movies. But given that his latest film is an explicitly Christmas-themed movie, I wanted to know why, as an artist working in the horror genre, he's drawn to such terrifying holiday fare. People, whenever people at church or people, um, you know, my son's school and my dads that I that I've become friends with, you know, they're surprised. You know, I'm doing you're doing horror, and they're like, "What? Well, why are you doing horror?" Um, I like horror, and I horror speaks to me because I believe that it is a great genre that actually is an apologetic for my worldview because you can invoke feelings and thoughts of eternal things, life and death, morality, right and wrong. Um, these are all things that are the sort of baseline subtext of any good, well-written horror movie. And, um, you know, some of them are trying to make a statement about these things. Some of them sort of like glaze over the surface. But um, my goal is to make movies that actually can spark a conversation and that you can you can actually get into the philosophy and the morality behind a particular idea. And, you know, in the case of The Cleansing Hour, it's about it's about um, demons and uh, social media and um, connection. And uh, with the new one, it's, a, you know, well, I don't want to give away too much, but with the new one, it's about an estranged daughter and her mother trying to reconcile forgiveness. Um, so there are, there are deeper themes in all of them. Something has happened in our past, something that has fractured our lives and our relationships, something that calls out for reconciliation in the present. That's the hope. 
that even if we have a family history as traumatic as Ebenezer Scrooge's, we still might be reconciled in the here and now. Which means that one of the underlying fears that films like A Creature is Stirring and A Christmas Carol tap into is that reconciliation might not be possible, neither now nor ever. The festering wound cannot be healed. To hope otherwise is the height of willful naivete, a refusal to accept reality. So even more than the original wound or violence, it's the hope that haunts us. It's the mirror image of fear. From this perspective, Damien's film is getting at an even deeper theme, just as he suggested. On one hand, the idea of reconciliation haunts us in the present because it might be a state of affairs that cannot be achieved. We fear that it will never come to pass. On the other hand, an even more terrifying thought is that reconciliation might actually be possible, but the only way to achieve it is to forgive. So as much as it seeks to entertain us by making us jump out of our seats, Damien's Christmas horror movie also prods us to ask a similar set of questions to A Christmas Carol. What would it look like to forgive those who have wounded us? What would it look like to forgive ourselves for how we have wounded others? And ultimately, how do we come to a place where we can admit that, at least in the present moment, the creature is stirring within us, that we, like Scrooge, are the monster? Damien's approach to filmmaking reminds me of that Flannery O'Connor quote we mentioned in our intro episode. Sometimes you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, she says, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. That's not just what a film like A Creature with Stirring is designed to do. It's also what the Christmas story itself, the story of Jesus' birth, is designed to do. It has the capacity to shock us out of complacency, to wake us up to realities about the world that we might otherwise not want to acknowledge, much less engage. But only if we let it, only if we let it horrify us in the way it should, because the nativity really is a horror story unlike any other. With large and startling figures, it reveals one nightmarish truth after another, and it doesn't stop at Jesus' birth. The narrative arc of the entire Christmas story is, from beginning to end, textbook horror. A short time after his birth, visitors from distant lands come to see the child, only to return home by a different route in order to avoid the ruler of the Roman province in Judea. Known as Herod the Great to some, he was none too pleased with their prophecies about the king of the Jews being born in the area. Micah says it will be Bethlehem. Bethlehem! Gather the troops! Gripped by fear that someone else might threaten his rule, Herod orders the murder of every male child under the age of two in the vicinity of Bethlehem 
In order to avoid the mass murder, Mary and Joseph are forced to flee with Jesus to Egypt under the cover of darkness. For this little family unit, the situation was more than dire. It was apocalyptic. And we miss something critical about the story of their journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem to Egypt if we gloss too quickly over the extreme nature of their plight. Like I said before, our tendency to treat the story as pious and sentimental rather than terrifying and tragic might be because of how many times we've heard it. But given what we've learned from musicians and sound engineers about the way sound functions in the horror genre to connect us viscerally and to get us emotionally invested, maybe the problem isn't what's in the story, but how we're accustomed to hearing it. To see if that idea had any traction, I reached out to Jessica Ray Huber. Jessica is a composer for TV and film who's produced scores for all kinds of genres, ranging anywhere from fantasy to drama to major horror series like The Walking Dead. So I asked her as a composer what she finds particularly compelling about the horror genre and whether that same sensibility might be what resonates so deeply with others. Ironically, I don't consume a lot of horror because I don't love it as a consumer if it's a pure horror film or show. Um, I like doing the scaring. I don't like being scared that much. And certain horror is not as scary. I mean, you can call zombie stuff like more like gory horror. It's not demonic. It's not, it, it's just more of a physical horror. And so that to me has bothered me less um, than other bits of horror. I mean, some people don't like zombie stuff for the same reason they don't like war movies because the same reason they don't want to watch the first sequence of Saving Private Ryan. You know, it's like it's because it's gore and that to them bothers them. So I think people, like I said, they want to feel alive. You know, they want something to remind them that their life is not as bad as it could be. You know, were, there, were, were there an actual zombie apocalypse um, <laughs> or any other type of hor horrific situation? You cross over into what I know a lot of people have experienced with their experience with the spiritual realm, both good and bad. And that is, I think, where you get into the oh my gosh, is this real, right? So when you get into demonic horror, I think you get into, this is getting a little too close for comfort for some people who do believe in the spiritual realm because it feels like, well, this could certainly happen or I've heard stories of this happening. You know, I think it depends on what genre you're talking about inside of the horror landscape, like why people go to it. It pushes our understanding of human nature to its extremes when human nature is exposed to the genre of horror. So that is why I think people enjoy that genre as a consumer, because it allows the exploration of our extremes, you know, our extreme capacity for hope and helping others and resiliency, and also our capacity for the deepest depravity that you, that you could possibly imagine, which in any apocalyptic story uh, is going to be on display. That is an interesting thing to a lot of people and why it's such a popular, uh, not only zombie stuff, but just horror in general, um, it does for people. I really like how you put that, our extreme capacity for hope. 
especially for those who aren't fans of the genre, I don't think people usually consider how much hope is involved in surviving a zombie apocalypse. So to maybe reverse the question, I wonder what you think about the gospel story. Do you think, given the way hope functions in horror, there might be some value in reading the gospels as if they were some kind of subgenre of horror? My opinion is that if we don't view it that way, it's doing it a disservice. We are Sunday schoolifying the gospel when we make it more tame. It is horrifying. And especially Mark, <laughs> you know, I think people don't look at the clear differences between the four gospels, but also they have similarity. Obviously, it's the same story just told from different points of view and different, you know, recollections. But it's also important to understand what it, what are they showing from the different perspectives. And I think through that, from a filmmaking perspective, you know, it's it's something that I think about all the time is who are whose perspective is the the chief one here which one is the one that is like this is the most important thing here and I think the beauty of the four gospels is that we're given several and I think that it shows the importance of not just looking at the goods good parts of it but just like you have to you don't get the resurrection without the her, the horror of the cross. I mean, that is the gospel, right? You you do not get, you have to glance upon that horrific, you know, beaten, killed, murdered Jesus in its entirety to understand like what our sin is and what his sacrifice was. It, it's why I think sometimes the resurrection doesn't fully hit home to people, enough is because there hasn't been a clear enough understanding of the dark bits as well. You don't get the resurrection without the horror of the cross. That is indeed a beautiful contrast. The cross is the epitome of ultimate estrangement. It marks that moment in history, not only when the God-man became the victim of humanity's worst instincts, but also when God was estranged from God's self. And yet, as despairing as Jesus' cry on the cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This moment, at least according to the Christian story, is also the source of humanity's greatest hope. It's a story of intrigue and murder and terror, one that begins at Christmas with the announcement of a teenage girl's unplanned pregnancy and the slaughter of countless children, and ends at Easter with her child being tortured to death in front of her eyes. So whatever hope we find embedded in this story can only be understood in light of its unrelenting horror. In fact, whether we're talking about Christmas or Easter, if we don't go through the death and the darkness and the despair, then any of the hope we encounter is nothing more than naive optimism. It's a false and fraudulent hope that would leave us with no other choice but to agree with Scrooge that our monstrous condition is both permanent and unchangeable. In the present, Ebenezer's existence is beyond hopeless or even horrific. It is downright hellish. Echoing the words written over the gates of hell in Dante's Inferno. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. But for Scrooge, as hopeless as the present may feel, it's the future that is truly terrifying.
I am in the presence of the spirit of Christmas yet to come. And you're going to show me shadows of things that have not yet happened, but will happen. Spirit of the future, I fear you more than any other specter I've seen. But even in my fear, I must tell you, I am too old. I cannot change. <laughs> No matter how imaginative the retelling, the climactic moment in every rendition of A Christmas Carol is when Scrooge sees his own grave. But this moment arrives not just as the end of Scrooge's story. In truth, the grave is where the journey ends for all of us, which is why that ancient piece of wisdom says, it's better to go to a funeral than a feast, for death is the destiny of every person, and the living should take this to heart. Still, the only thing potentially more disturbing than a ghost bringing you to a graveyard filled with dead bodies is standing with that ghost over a grave filled with my own dead body. And that's precisely the kind of world-shattering terror that lays hold of Ebenezer Scrooge when he meets the ghost of Christmas future. Before I draw nearer to that stone, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that must be? Or are the only shadows of things that might be? shadow certain ends, but if the deeds be departed from, surely the ends will change. Tell me to soul with what you show me now. Like Scrooge, none of us really knows how we'll handle the reality of our own death until we get there. But in general, people living in American society in the 21st century are not very well acquainted with death and dying. We've so fully outsourced the management of death to professionals that we only encounter it on rare or exceptional occasions. And even then, it's a fully sanitized affair, cut off from the rest of regular life. This wasn't the case in eras past, like in 1840s England, when death hovered around all of life, an ever-present threat that was impossible to ignore or deny. But in our hyper-medicalized society, it's, it's not just that we lack firsthand experience with death. For us, death is an aberration, a, a medical problem that medical technologies can fix. So our fears are not quite the same as Scrooge's. We're not just scared of death. We're offended by death in the same way we're offended by starvation in the modern world. It's, it's something that shouldn't happen, something that can and should be eradicated. And yet, death still comes for all of us. It's the great leveler. Christians, atheists, professors, scientists, filmmakers, husbands, wives, children, gregarious nephews, and crotchety old uncles, we all share one thing in common. We're all going to die. Bob? Yeah? Are you afraid of death? Yeah. Me too. And there's no way out of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. And what difference does it make if it's tomorrow or 80 years? Much sooner in your case. Do you know how fast time goes? I was six, like yesterday. Me too. I'm going to die. You are going to die. What else is there to be afraid of? What else is there to be afraid of? 
As both individuals and as a society, we seem to lack the resources to face death head on as Scrooge was forced to do, opting instead either to try and fix it or pretend like it doesn't exist. So I asked my friend and Fuller alum, Jonathan Stoner, if he'd be willing to share with me any insights he had gleaned from his firsthand experience as a hospital chaplain. I was particularly interested in the different kinds of fears that death and dying stir up among those who are entrusted to his care, whether they're religious or not. I've found that working in healthcare, um, people, even if they're not religious, they're a lot more superstitious and just spiritual in general than I probably, probably would have expected. Um, and I think it's because when you're caring for people who are navigating end of life, there's that liminal space, I think, that you kind of enter into with the people that you're accompanying who are nearing end of life and who are preparing to make that transition. And I think we as human beings just, even if we don't know how to put language to it, we intuitively know that there's something beyond our understanding that we're stepping into. You know, it's the, stu it's the situations that make the hair stand up on your arm, you know, or the, or the back of your neck. Like, it's situations where you know that you're encountering something that you can't see, but you can feel, and you know it's, you know it's real, but, you, but it's not something tangible. I think there's, like, this understanding, especially people who are people, like, scientists or people who really value science. Like, when there's something outside of their scope, outside of their realm of experience and it makes them uncomfortable or it makes them fearful in some way, they're like, okay, this is outside of my scope of practice. This seems to be within the, within the scope of the priest or the minister who works here as a chaplain. So this is your domain, have at it, you know, do what you do. Um, and I think that I've seen that happen again and again, and especially like um, there are certain rooms in hospitals where if there are deaths that have happened um, in quick succession in, in a particular room or on a particular unit, there are, it's almost like a, there's like a, uh, like a, a resonance or like a, some kind of a residue. a residue. There's like some kind of a, a feeling like a, of sadness or darkness around that space and then they will often ask even people who aren't that aren't that religious will ask the chaplains to come and do a cleansing sometimes they'll especially like the night shift there are um patients that have died and then they'll sometimes see things like ghosts or they'll hear hear sounds or they'll hear crying or they'll hear the sound of a child you know and so they treat it, you know, they, they don't know how to explain it, but they're like, I don't want this around, so like, let's cast it out. So come on, Ghostbusters, <laughs> chaplains, come in. So, yeah. There is a residue. Even the most skeptical among us can feel it. The dead are never far from us. But here's the kicker. One day, in the not-too-distant future, we will be the dead leaving our mark on the living. It's inescapable. We will be the mysterious presence that haunts hospital corridors and houses and classrooms. And what we discover then will be the same thing Scrooge realizes as he's given a vision of his future. The way we live and love and give to others in the present will determine whether the mark we leave on the living will be terrorizing or transformative. So like Scrooge, we all have a choice to make. As the dead, 
Will our presence continue to generate more death and more terror and more trauma, or will we haunt the living in a way that gives birth to new life? As he pleads with the spirit of Christmas future for a second chance at life, we know which path Scrooge has decided to take, not because he fears his own death, but because his eyes have been opened to a reality that is far worse than death, a reality crystallized in the unjust suffering and untimely death of Tiny Tim. Scrooge transforms from a human beast to a human being when he accepts, perhaps for the very first time, that the horrors he inherited have reverberated into the lives of others. And the only reason he's concerned about his own death is because he now realizes that as long as he's alive, he still has the power to do something about it. He is not, at the end of the day, too old or too far gone. He still has time to change the way he haunts the future. I haven't taken leave of my senses, Bob. I've come to them. From now on, I want to try to help you to raise that family of yours. If you'll let me. Well, we'll, we'll talk it over later, Bob, over a, over a bowl of hot punch. Hmm? The exuberant joy with which the story ends can only be understood in light of where it began. When we first meet him, Scrooge refuses to acknowledge that he's afraid of anything other than maybe a negative balance on his bank ledger. What we come to realize is that, in fact, Scrooge is deeply afraid, so much so that he's driven to the point of obsession by his fear, fear of the past, fear of being wounded again, fear of being held accountable for how he's wounded others, fear of being taken advantage of in business or in love, fear of being destitute, fear of his fear. Sound familiar? But as this scary ghost story unfolds, what happens is that each of the three spirits helps Scrooge redirect his unacknowledged fears, first away from himself and towards the plight of others, and then eventually beyond death itself. So as endearing as Tiny Tim is, and as terrifying as the ghost of Christmas future may be, Dickens' classic tale of Christmas horror is really about a man who finally learns how to fear rightly. And I've got to say, that's a pretty fitting way to end a podcast called Be Afraid. When we started this journey, I, I had in the back of my mind the passage from 1 John, that Christians are called to embody the kind of love that casts out fear. But the older I get and the more I encounter others like Ebenezer Scrooge, who've been around the block a few more times than me, the more I realize that Christian life isn't so much about eliminating fear or overcoming it, it's about redirecting our fear. In other words, perfect love casts out fear. It, it sets our fears free, not by eliminating fear from our lives, but by pointing it in a different direction. And if that's true, then to fear rightly looks a whole lot like running toward, not away from, the one who holds all our hopes and fears. So let me ask you a, a what if question. What if, what if this Christmas we directed our fears toward the one whose incarnation we celebrate at this time each year, the God who took on flesh, the God whose birth, life, and death was nothing short of a horror story? 
If we did, we would be forced to reckon with what the incarnation actually demands of us, which is a radical reversal of our priorities, a, a transformation of our lives that runs so deep, we use the language of death and resurrection to describe it. I'll admit, the idea of fearing rightly kind of turns on its head our understanding not only of the Christmas story, but of the gospel itself, a story that literally means good news. Remember my friend and colleague, Dr. Tommy Givens? His comments about the horror of the gospel are helpful here. What's so striking about it is that all of this difficulty takes place in the midst of a life that is so worth celebrating, is so saturated with God's grace and mercy. The only reason horror is even perceivable, I would say, is against the backdrop of what it threatens, of what there is to lose. And so it's a mistake to allow the horror to overshadow that. And I would say even in the genre, what makes a horror film so good is when you're actually really attached to the people that are being threatened or destroyed. I think that the horror of Jesus's death, for example, is being told for what it is in the New Testament as part of something that is like crazy good news. But what makes it so compelling is that it's not cheap good news. It's not a triumphalist story. It doesn't give you some hope that all the bad things are just going to go away one day. And a Christian hope for resurrection like that, I think, is actually really destructive because it doesn't invest us in the suffering that we've inherited, that, we, that our hope is supposed to empower us to engage. If we sort of present the horror of the gospel story, or arguably of anything else, as if it deserves to overshadow you know, what it destroyed, or overshadow forever what could grow from the ashes of what was destroyed is just not true. It's not true to what made that horror what it was. Um, so I think it's our difficult task, especially when we're part of those who are suffering, to not settle for a memory of horror that allows it to sort of take the entire field. Crazy good news. For a person like Ebenezer Scrooge, good news means the ghosts of Christmas past don't have the final word. He isn't too far gone. Likewise, for those who find themselves inflicting terror upon others in the present, good news means that your monstrous state of being is neither permanent nor unchangeable. And for anyone who's inherited unspeakable traumas, the crazy good news is that your future does not have to be predetermined or dictated by those terrors. The reason A Christmas Carol has endured after all these years isn't because it shies away from these horrible truths or pretends like they don't exist or that they'll never happen again. The reason this ghost story is evergreen is because it reminds us that the horrors we encounter are only intelligible in light of what they threaten. Of course, 
In due time, we will be the dead haunting the living who exist now only in our imagination. And when that time comes, they will be telling scary ghost stories about us. But the crazy good news is that we can choose to engage with the horrors of the here and now rather than turn away from them. It's a choice that will determine whether the stories that are told about us are stories of terror or transformation. So the question I leave you with is this. As you think about the hopes and the fears of all your remaining years, how do you want to haunt the future? With that, my friends, I bid you farewell. Until we meet again. Be afraid. Be Afraid is a production of Christianity Today, Uncommon Voices Collective, and Brim Film at Fuller Theological Seminary. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producer and graphic designer is Steven Scheidler. Produced, edited, and mixed by T.J. Hester. Music by Jeremy Hunt and Koholeth. Written and hosted by me, Cutter Calloway. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.